Welcome to the Foundations podcast series, where we build our present on the foundations of the future. On each episode, we'll feature either an educational, tactical guide or a special guest whose story will help pave the way to a stronger foundation in life, business, and beyond. This show is sponsored by the SalesCast community, a place where entrepreneurs and sales leaders build revenue-first podcasts. Join the community for free at salescast.community. Today, we have a longtime friend, mentor, and coach, Richard Burt, the founder of WrightPath. Yeah, good to see you, Chris. Um, and what prompted this interview, the last, the last time we did a show together was like right when COVID hit. Yeah. And you made some like very interesting predictions in terms of what would happen on a macro economic level. And like a lot of those things came true. Yeah. And then recently I posted a quote from Peter Drucker, which is along the lines of the only reason a business exists is to create a customer. And you commented it was an honor to service as teacher's assistant. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So I knew Peter for many, many years, but uh, I got my MBA at the Drucker School uh, at Claremont, and uh, it was a, and how I came to him, I'll, I'll illuminate a little bit more, but uh, uh, between 1979 and 1981, I was his teacher's aide, and uh, he was an incredible mentor to me, uh, both he and his wife, and I'll tell you more about the, that story. Um, but, uh, yeah, I considered him a very good and dear friend, uh, up, uh, I saw him up until one month before he passed. So, uh, very, very, very influential, considered one of five key mentors in my life. One of five key mentors in your life from 1979 to 81, you were his teacher's aide. Yeah, that's correct. And then we continued, uh, a friendship away from it. Well, I mean, walk me back to 79. What was that like? Well, very interesting. Um, uh, I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley, and um, I was very much a, a child prodigy in the fact that by the time I was uh, 17, I was pretty much done with high school. I uh, was, uh, was mastering all my classes, and one of my teachers uh, said, uh, would you like to graduate early? So back in the day, you couldn't test out. You had to go before the school board. And this uh, 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 teacher allowed me to basically go on to junior college. So in exchange for getting out of, uh, so I got out of of uh, high school at the end of my fall. Hmm. Uh, it's just really weird. So I went to ju junior college. I went uh spring summer uh fall spring summer so by the time i was literally 18 years old i was already a junior standing so uh i uh, uh applied to cal poly pomona I applied to usc went and selected cal poly pomona and i met a my my first mentor was a a really nice man named dr J uh, john bruckman still alive and uh, he was the dean of the business school, and he kind of took me under his wing, and he and um, I said, I really want to learn business. So he put me on a really nice entrepreneurial uh, business hmm. degree program, 
And so when I got done with that program, I literally was all of 20 years old and I had already graduated with an undergraduate BA. And he said, normally people can't get into MBA school until they're 26 to 28, but I'm going to write a letter to any dean and get you into whatever school you want to. So I, he wrote a very nice letter to Peter Drucker uh, at Claremont. And he wrote a very nice uh, letter to Stanford and to, to USC. I got into all three schools, but I uh, was very impressed at the time because Peter was the management guru. So imagine I was all of 20 years old and uh, my dean basically wrote um, a letter to Peter and said, please check this kid out. He's really amazing. And I had, I had done the work. And I want to say this to you. I worked really hard to get to that position. So I went out to Claremont and uh, he was really taken by me and uh, uh, offered me to, to be uh, my mentor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so imagine 20 years old and you basically have now aligned yourself with the greatest business mind uh, that was in existence. Of the time. Of yeah. the time. He had written 30 uh, books. And so... Were you nervous? Like, what was that like well, for you? It, it's, and now I have to tell you the funniest story. Of all the people that I've ever met, the one quality that doesn't get talked about very often around him, he was the most humble man I ever met. Hmm. And uh, his story was quite interesting is that uh, he grew up in Vienna and a a very um, smart, uh, intellectual family. Uh, Sigmund Freud was a guest at their house many times. So they traveled in very deep um, uh, uh, circles. He got a degree in economics and he became a reporter for uh, a newspaper, I believe, in London. And he started writing about the rise of Nazism. Hmm. And uh, Hitler made him a marked man, and uh, which is that if he were to uh, be found and arrested, he would be sent to a concentration camp. So he literally was able to escape to London from Austria. And then from uh, London, he was able to get transit uh, to uh, uh, Vermont. Hmm. And so he taught uh, at a a college in Vermont. And then he wrote uh, in 49 the first really significant uh, management uh, book and uh, and then became uh, part of the... Uh, NYU uh, and taught there for many, many years. He had uh, a a beautiful daughter and she went to Claremont. And uh, one day he went out to visit her and uh, the dean of the business school had just come from, I believe, UCLA, saw him walking on the street and said, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I'm visiting my daughter. And he goes, I really like it here. And he says, if I could get you a professorship, would you move here and become part of our faculty? And he said, yeah. So literally this guy, wow. literally this guy walked around the corner to his office called uh, uh, Maurice Sinclair 
uh, Clark and said, uh, could you endow uh, Peter's position? And she fronted a million dollars. And the rest is history. So he uh, ended up moving to uh, Claremont uh, to be uh, with his, his daughter. He had a wonderful wife named Doris. And uh, and then they uh, got probably the most modest house you've ever seen in suburbia. It was a very simple ranch home that was in a nondescript neighborhood in Claremont. So the I, I bring this story forward because I was told to go meet him. And so they gave me his address to his house. And I I grew up in that neighborhood and I thought, wow, this is not where I would think that this illustrious guy is living. It's like this little simple neighborhood off of Route 66, like the main drag. And I just said, it's not even pull, pull up to the house. And there's a man gardening and he's in a, a blue denim shirt. Uh, and he's like hedging and I come to the door and his wife's there, Doris. And I said, I'm here to meet Peter Drucker. She goes, well, he's right there. He's gardening. <laughs> I literally, and I say this to my first impression of him is I thought he was the gardener. I didn't realize I didn't recognize him from his books or anything. Here's a simple guy on a ladder hedging. And uh, he came down and said hello to me and he welcomed me into his study and uh, she made me, uh, uh, I'll always remember that she brought me uh, tea and cookies. And they basically embraced me. And uh, from that point on, it's pretty much at that house three days a week. So my job as teacher assistant for him was to organize all of his trips. Uh, and then uh, each of the trips, he would uh, offer up autographed uh, books so I would literally go with boxes of books, open them. He would sign them. I'd box them, sort them out, do all his travel arrangements, drive him to the airport, drive him to talks. And then um, I had like about five hours managing his day-to-day -day in his office. So pretty amazing. And I say this too, what a blessing this was at, at 20 to have an entire family uh, embrace you. And uh, it was interesting. We have a thing called Drucker Days where the, all the alumni and all the um, students could get back together one day a year. And, and um, Doris always came up to me and gave me a big hug. Mm. And um, he eventually started having memory problems. Mm. And so he started to forget who I was. But to the day he uh, died, she always recognized me. Oh, wow. So very, very, but an amazingly humble man for all the success that he had uh, and just uh, lived very, very simply. I, I think that's a remarkable model for to, to strive to be. Yeah. I would like to strive to be that. Yeah, so that that had a huge impact on me on how I live my life. And um, for all the success that he had, he didn't have much of an ego either. He knew that he was the top guy, but in the course of his conversations, um, very little ego was on display. Um, he was generally a person that loved problem solving, hmm. very solutions-oriented. 
So the gist of the conversations that I heard taking place between him and various business leaders um, was very much is that, let me give you perspectives on how to handle this problem. I got a question for you is if you're getting into MBA school at 20, that must mean that you were a great learner. How did you become such a remarkable learner? Well, I think the thing that um, I came to business not knowing it. And, and uh, so I had a curiosity about all the aspects of it. And uh, I have a very simple uh, thing that I t- was taught through my first mentor, Dr. John Bruckman. As he said, think of a business as that you need to know uh, how a small business works. Because every big business was once a small business. So he said, you should uh, take uh, an entrepreneurial class on how to s- uh, uh, start a small business. So you need to know the books, you need to know uh, HR, you need to know uh, marketing, you need to know manufacturing, you need to know customer service, you need to know distribution. So the thing was, is that I never had the ambition to run an IBM. What I had the, I learned to do is how to create something from scratch and build it up. And I remember John said something to me that was really um, uh, life-changing for me is he says, think if you're in charge of a product for a big company, you're still a small business. Think of it as if you're a consultant, you're still a small business. And so that was a, mm. a really amazing mindset to then go and, and latch on to Peter, who has the ultimate Rolodex. Mm. And I mean, to give you an example, and this would be a typical day in the office with him. I One day I took a call from Jerry Brown, the governor of California, uh, Thomas Watson Sr. and Jr. of IBM, Marita of Sony, that was just like the first two hours of calls. <laughs> so when you see somebody that has mm. such uh, a visionary viewpoint on the world, and he was a very much a futurist and a, and a solutions and common sense cool guy, he'll tell you he was trained a journalist. He wasn't a, he, he, there wasn't management. He invented it. But it became because he documented what he saw through his journalistic eye. So, uh, all right, just to recap, um, the way that you became a learner of business was you had a curiosity to understand all the aspects of it. And in your initial training, uh, you focused primarily on the small business and then learn to apply the small business to any aspect of business and the day in the life of being Peter Drucker's teacher's aide was taking calls from all these other remarkable people. Yeah. And I can imagine putting myself in your shoes. You're learning about getting started, small business, building a foundation. Um, You're talking to all these incredible people. You're learning from one of the greatest futurists of his time. Um, I mean, let's talk about what, um, what he taught. So you mentioned a book. Yeah. So when I was studying with him, he wrote probably uh, to me, one of the most landmark uh, 
uh, books ever written. It was called Managing in Turbulent Times. And uh, what's really interesting is that in this book, he is four chapters, but basically it was a futurist idea of where the world was going to uh, move to. In this, he talks specifically about the demise of the Soviet Union and, and historical empires, their inability to maintain. And that is basically, you know, a fallout of what you're seeing with Putin now trying to put back the pieces of an empire that failed and won't come back. Um, so he was very much a, a master of history, understanding mm-hmm. the geopolitical aspects of economics about history. The other thing at the time is that we had just opened up the borders through Nixon uh, with China. So when he wrote this, we were only like nine years into the Chinese experience. And he uh, foresaw that they would become the manufacturing hub of the world. And so that's laid out in in a chapter called Managing the Sea Change. And what he predicted America was going to be, and this was a a term that he coined, was that America would be a country known for being knowledge workers. The idea of people that had the knowledge to put pieces together and transform things. And uh, we would largely uh, uh, lose our manufacturing base in uh, favor of servicing uh, products and, and services. So, all of this is laid out in this book. Um, he, obviously, I think that if he had lived long enough, he would have been thoroughly amazed at uh, what's go- going on with the internet, with uh, uh, blockchain, uh, with social media. He would have really thought about the historical consequences of prior movements and how these would be applied to these these new things. Well, since you since you had an opportunity to really get to know the guy, what do you think he would say about things like Web 3.0 and social media and just what's happened? Well, what's happening? So his opinion and I would say this to you is that marketing has had a fundamental shift from when he uh, espoused it to what is. So in the old days, it was this push pull attitude was that you create uh, a company by creating a great product and then you use advertising to pull people into the, the product, right? So he grew up in an era where, you know, media was defined by general awareness. I think what was interesting is, is that the tables got turned when uh, Google in particular um, came out of the Internet. And the fact that you had instead of uh, companies seeking customers, you had customers seeking product. Mm -hmm. And uh, that has been a fundamental... So the demand came first now. Yeah. And he would have, I know for a fact, would have loved this whole paradigm. Because that's in in my... uh, It's way more efficient this way. But in my 40 years, that's singularly the most fundamental change is that everything is self-directed now. Is that the power left the company and went to the customer. 
Hmm. And uh, that's why when you put that statement out the other day, and what was the quote? Be- the, the, the only valid business purpose is to create a customer. Right. And now the customer has the ability to create the business. The only valid customer purpose is to create a business. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he would say that. Yeah. He would flip it. Yeah, think about that. That's interesting. That's why... Uh, Can, I just want to repeat that real quick so I don't forget it. The only valid customer purpose is to create a business. Yeah. Think about that. that Customers can, can build up or tear down a business. Yeah. Think about Yelp. They can destroy... Uh, customers can, can destroy a business overnight if they want to. Yeah. He would have loved reputation management. Cancel culture, reputation management. He used to... He, uh, so I have a lot of favorite quotes by him, which uh, I'm going to share with you because some of them are really uh, hilarious. Uh, one day I asked him, what is it like to talk to all the top people? And it, and mind you, I'm 20 years old, you know, and I'm just like the f- junior flunky in the office taking his calls, right? He goes, Richard, higher up the tree the monkey goes, the more you see of his ass. <laughs> I go, what? He goes, remember that, Richard. He said, the more uh, the monkey goes up the tree, the more you see of his ass, which is that leaders, uh, you can talk about all their brilliance, but they also expose all their weaknesses. Hmm. So he would, have, he would have understood who Steve Jobs was. Steve Jobs was uh, a master at innovation, uh, a failure at human relations and human uh, resources. You can't have one and the other. He would have looked at uh, Mark Zuckerberg in a very different lens than we look at him. Uh, he would have recognized and seen the uh, flaws in him mm-hmm. very, very easily. You know, here's a guy who built probably the greatest connective tissue and then decided that privacy and connectivity doesn't really matter. You can just let that slide. And now it's just imploding on him. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's so the thing is, is he always recognized that companies are built on strengths, not on weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Why Apple's still around is because their strength was innovation. The reason why Facebook may survive is because of the, the nature of connectivity. But the other thing is the the other thing is that the consumer is empowered to shut down Facebook. If you don't want your content shown there anymore and you remove it, the value of that business goes away. That's a lot different than coming out with the coolest, sleekest phone or the coolest, sleekest computer or the coolest, sleekest iPod. So a lot of our um, a lot of our audience are heavy LinkedIn users. I'm wondering if you ha- if you have any opinions on the platform or what Peter would have said about LinkedIn. Well, the thing is, is that he would have loved the idea that you could connect businesses together, and that uh, he would have loved the fact that you could source and find people and connect and do business with people. You know, do you, that was he was all about that. So I think that he would have really uh, loved this this whole concept of LinkedIn. He would have loved this whole concept of Twitter. You know, he was all about that. Hmm. You know, and he he was really a champion of management. Um, probably his landmark 
uh, thing that's still taught today is management by objectives. What is that? Uh, MBOs. That was his, was his greatest achievement as a manager, which is that when you get a job is that every quarter, every 30 days, you set about objectives to accomplish. And I think that that still holds true. That's just become, in other words, uh, Slack and Asana. <laughs> right. So the thing is, is that a lot of companies uh, um, are tied to basic principles that he came through, you know, technology-wise that, you know, are rooted in what he was about in his books. Such a simple concept that I, I suppose I take it for granted and not really thinking about where it comes from, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we can steer this conversation wherever you want to go. I mean, how how is life, how is business for you today? Well, business is transformed with COVID. You know, nobody uh, thought that we would uh, look like this in T-shirts and this is our way that we do business. And it's 100% based on WhatsApp and 100% based on Zoom. Based on our attire, we could be 10 years old. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, you we know, don't even look like adults anymore. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you're just one step removed from having Pop-Tarts in the toaster oven, you know? Right. <laughs> you know, when you get on calls. So the, the most amazing thing for me is I do business in Columbia. I do business uh, with a company in Boston. I do business with a company in Tennessee. I do business with a company in Melbourne, Australia. And everybody's pretty much happy not being in an office. Right. So I think that anybody that's in the commercial real estate um, uh, business is going to be wanting to get people to come back. I think the genie's out of the, the bottle now. Well, you saw here in Irvine, we have the Spectrum Center, and they pretty much pivoted to food and services, like gyms and nail salons and and like distinctive foods. Like there's not no. much retail. And if you look at commercial on the office side, all these companies are embracing kind of like a hot desk model. You come in and their whole company's like a co-working space. No one has a dedicated workstation anymore. No. You know what I mean? So it reduces the amount of footprint that they need. Right. So now there's, there's less um, leased space per company. So you have more people jam packed into one building. It's just, it's just changing the way that that looks. So, uh, this is a big change for me, but um, I have a younger brother that lives up in Oregon, mm -hmm. and I haven't seen him for 25 years, and I just spent 10 days up there and ran my business flawlessly between Australia all the way to the East Coast. We used to call them digital nomads. Now, it's just normal. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm up there, so I'm literally uh, moving some of my clothes up uh, there in a, in a month. Um, my wife and I are, are giving up a lease. She, we're going to get a small place in Laguna. And I have a friend that just moved from Belgium over to the west side. And it's great. I haven't seen him in 42 years. And I'm going to start spending time with him. So I really, and I say this too, what I love about my life now is it's not rooted in real estate. It's, it's rooted in people and in, in experiences and uh, the business I can run anywhere now. I, 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 and I, and I know you're at like a later stage in your life, but I, I, I think a, a lot more people my age, millennial generation, you know, are not going to be buying homes for a while. Why? 
What's the point? Why would we want to tether ourselves to a box that historically we've only seen time after time these boxes taken away by circumstances outside of our control? Absolutely. Why would we tie our livelihood to the stock market? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I think, uh, I think, uh, sorry to offend anybody out there that. No, but is I, tell, a, a, I totally an agree. I sold, yeah. I, sold, I sold my house. I've leased a house for two years. Totally happy. But it, it comes to uh, my stage of life right now is that I'd rather take the money and make it into experiences and enjoy the rest of my life than worry about uh, keeping a bank happy. Gen Z already knows this. Yeah. They are, they've already built up their million follower accounts. They're already doing brand deals. They already have flexibility in their life before they enter college. Yeah. You know, like they've, they're figuring it out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, um, I think that, uh, so a couple of growth businesses I've been involved with, I've started two other businesses uh, as a result of COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, one, I have an uh, export business um, uh, into Australia where I'm providing uh, COVID test kits. So um, I'm marketing um, a remarkable new product that it's a two-for-one test. So hospitals have a problem when you show up, they don't know whether you have the flu or whether you have COVID. And they have to make that distinction because uh, uh, how you impact their critical workforce. Mm. And um, and so I, I'm working with a company to bring uh, this two-for-one product there for hospitals in Australia. And I don't see COVID's going to go away. It's it's already proven that it's smart and knows how to mutate. It's going to be a thing that will define this generation. It's going to be like the flu and the cold. There will be a COVID season. <laughs> you know, the, and we've not done a good job managing the population. <laughs> uh, we've allowed it to expand. I remember a number two years ago, I told you that it has a likelihood to hit uh, thirty percent of our population, and it hit it perfectly. Yeah, based on numbers that I could see. I think about six months ago, it's like everybody, everybody in my in my immediate and extended circle, just overnight, boom, you know, COVID. Yeah. So it, it happened. It really did. Yeah. So the thing is, is that we're going to live with that. The other thing is that I see that. Um, uh, been following uh, this uh, non-fungible token and blockchain. I find it very interesting is that as we go into a recession mm -hmm. and we've uh, we've created a superheated real estate market. Yeah, uh, makes no sense. That makes no sense. We've created a superheated stock market that makes no sense. You're going to see a mass. A redeployment of assets. Well, Zillow went from 150 bucks a share to like 40 bucks a share. Right. So you had all these like real estate companies, which were just were just a tech layer trying to get into to be brokers and like just failing miserably. Yeah. But what what you're going to see though is that um, what uh, uh, non fungible tokens. Uh, where they're going to really um, change the world is around real art. Yeah. Not not fake little digital images of apes. 
Yeah. But uh, if I own a Jackson Pollock and it's valued um, at uh, $30 million, now I can timeshare it <laughs> using blockchain. The, 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 the wealthy have adopted this strategy for a very long time. Right. Is to, is to park money in art assets. And gemstones. And gemstones. And to like rent them to museums. Yep. So that's the other business that I've been involved with is uh, building out the, that infrastructure around fine, like fine art and gemstones. That's beautiful. Because the thing is, is that they're real assets that will appreciate. Well, just like music, like to own an original record, right? So I think that's also a worthy application. Yeah, look at, uh, look at the value of these artists as they sell their backlog, uh, back catalog. You know, uh, Springsteen's got $500 million for uh, his catalog, and he hasn't had a hit since 1984. That's brilliant. So, uh, Bowie did it first, by the way. He had a thing called Bowie Bonds. He was so far thinking that he sold off all his royalties in advance, created a whole thing called Bowie Bonds. That's another brilliant guy that, you know, is worthy of, of the drucker of music. He was so far ahead of everybody. Well, let's take off the futurist hat for a moment and let's come to the present. So a lot of listeners the listeners of this show are just getting started or they're at the end of something and they're thinking of starting something new, foundations. It's this show's all about the new. Um what would you say to to that person that has the itch, they are ready, they're starting something. What would your advice be? Well, I'm, it's funny is that I mentored a young man yesterday, and uh, he's just getting out of UCI, and he wanted to know, like, what is my viewpoint on the world where I sit at 63 versus where he sits at 23? You know, and I told him that the thing that defines me more than anything is that I just have a burning hunger to get up every day and do something, Okay. So you have to have that internal drive because that's the only thing that's going to fuel you through multiple decades. You're going to have ups. You're going to have downs. Life is going to be good. Life uh, can be trying. But if you don't have a basic hunger and a basic fire, uh, you're not going to get through the trying times. And then the other thing is, is that when you're in good times, you can enjoy it because it's the fruit of having that hunger and that drive. Okay, but let's 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 back up. So, um, if you don't have the hunger and drive, what should you do? Well, you need to then think about what is your passion. And I'm looking at the word right here. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, well, that's Jim Collins, skill, value, passion. You see the whole series yeah, yeah, behind yeah, yeah. You. But I'm looking at the word passion, and right. I just. It was, but you have to have. You know, I hear something funny. Everybody who sits in this seat uses passion at least once. <laughs> but I'm saying, but you have to have a passion yeah. for life. Yeah. Um, second thing, and and I think that is it passion discoverable. Yeah. The other thing that, and I, I I've had some tremendous success because I've done something. Um, uh, uh, you and I, we we love the fact that we are part of the Judeo Christian ethic. And I went out the last two years during COVID, and I wouldn't say I'm going to use the term minister, but I started uh, on my daily walks befriending homeless people. 
And I just made it a, a point that I'm going to be a part of a community and I'm going to recognize everybody in my community. So I'm going to be nice to merchants. I'm going to be nice to people that serve me coffee. But if I see a homeless person, I'm just going to find out what their name is and greet them by name and ask them how they're doing. So I've done this now for two years. Out of the That three, counts as ministering. But I'm saying, but out of three people that I've met, two of them now are no longer homeless. Uh, one is probably 270 days into alcohol recovery. Uh, another one is under uh, opioid uh, recovery. Both of them have roofs over their head. And both of them acknowledge that they love the love that I gave them because I never treated them any differently. Uh, the third person I'm ministering is deep into meth addiction, very difficult case, but I always tell him when I see him, uh, and I go like this, I always make a shape of heart and say, I love you. And he says, what does that mean? And I said, I don't like you this way, but I'm still going to love you because if you can get over to this, I'm going to love you more. And it, And that's what changed it for the other two people. So the thing that I, I say this to young people, think about your tribe and think about your community and think about what you can give back to that tribe and, and what you can give back to that community. There's a tremendous amount of hurt that's going on in this world right now. I, th I think you just, gave, you just gave the formula for developing passion is to look toward those that need help to find a need and to fill it. And it'll activate something inside of your soul. It'll activate something inside of your heart, which will just make sense. And then follow that. Yeah. Because you can get caught up in everything else. And at the end, and my dad uh, was a, a brilliant mentor to me. And he said, you know, no hearse comes with a luggage rack. <laughs> and uh, it was one of the last things he told me before he died. And I just love that quote. Is that in the end, you're going to leave a bunch of stuff to other people. So why have it in uh, some very good friends of mine, uh, uh, their uh, son and their daughter-in-law just sold their condo in Lisa Vejo and bought a Sprinter van. And they're going to they're going to travel around and they're thinking about maybe they'll relocate uh, to Arkansas and go on the download. And so the thing is, is that's what I like about this generation is they figured this out. My generation, not so much. No. Well, I mean, you've technically spent, you've spent a whole lifetime in Laguna Beach without living there. Yeah. And now you're finally going to live there. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but under a different circumstance. Yeah. You know, and so the thing is, is that I don't. What, I, what I'm saying to you is that, but I'm also going to live other places. And of course. Because what I need is the input to influence my art. And, you know, that, you know, I'm a, an artist. That's uh, like your ultimate aspiration yeah. is that yeah. if you ever had to go to just one thing, it, it would be that. Yeah, it's my muse. So, you, you can't, you, the, the thing is, you can get caught up into career. You can get caught up in uh, relationships. You can get caught up in friendships. You can get caught up in family. There's goods and bads, you know. Let's face it, you know. Uh, I look back at, at what I love in my life is that I have a friend from college for 42 years who finally is moving to California so we can spend time together, you know. But we visit each other every year. Hmm. You know, we're never apart. 
Yeah, you know. So all I'm saying to you is that that uh, you you can put value in things that matter, and you can put a lot of energy into things that don't matter. Hmm. And the wisdom that I have is I've kind of figured out which one is which. The last time you were in here, you wrote the things you value make for personal riches. Yeah. Still believe that. Well, any closing thoughts as we wrap up this episode? I mean, we got a we got an amazing chance to take a look at your early life, um, just going into college, working under Peter Drucker, just soaking it in from this man, focusing on small business, focusing on, I mean, and you had a wonderful model of humility. I think that that definitely must have made a huge impact on your life because you're the man with a thousand careers. You've done so many things that others like just haven't. And you're remarkably humble. You're talking about, you know, going to spend time with three homeless guys and like investing and pouring into them. Um, and we had a chance to, to, to take a look at some, some trends that are going on in the economy. Um, any closing thoughts for today's episode? Well, I think, um, I, I think that I would say this to people is commit to something. Don't, don't be adrift. Uh, what's the saddest thing for me is that I know so many people that at, as they get older, they're saying, well, I wanted to do that at one time, but I just never got around to it. Well, they never will get around to it. So the thing is, is don't have a life of regrets where you're waiting for something that you wanted that you could have today. You know, if I, if I exit this earth today, you know, and I'm not planning to, but if I were to do it, I lived a rich life. And because I didn't let things go by the wayside, I don't have any regrets. I've done everything that I've wanted to do, and I've done it with passion, and I've done it with fire. And that's the key to, to life. If don't, don't make excuses because it can be taken from you uh, very quickly. You know, uh, I know quite a few people that knew Taylor Hawkins hmm. and uh, were in, uh, he was a, a, a local hero from Laguna Hills. And as everybody knows, he passed away uh, in Columbia recently. Um, so the thing is, is that you can have all the wealth of the world, you know, be rock star or rich, but it doesn't matter. It's, you never know when you're going to exit. So don't, don't live a life of regrets, live a life of, of that you saw something, you went and you accomplished it because that's what uh, will enrich your life and, and make it meaningful. Thanks for tuning in to the Foundations podcast series. Please leave us a review and subscribe. Want to reach out to me? Just find me on LinkedIn in the show notes below and I'd be happy to talk.